Well, good, uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church today. My name's Kevin. I am the campus pastor here at Aldergrove, and uh, you are here on week five of our Leading Together series, which is all about women, men, and authority in the church. Now, I was going to do a poll about how many people are like, can we finally stop talking about this? Like, we're ready to be done. And then people that are like, no, we could go for a lot longer, because I've heard both things, and I think we're actually probably about 50-50, but I won't make you put up your hand. We, we have been doing this for a little while, and I actually think it's been a great case study in looking at how we read our Bibles. Whether or not you're, you're interested in this particular topic, I think it's been really great to just see, we actually need to look at the context, we need to study a little bit deeper than just seeing what Scripture might seem like it says on the surface. And I've also been really encouraged because, to be honest, I've, I've talked to a number of women in our church who have felt very empowered and they have felt permissioned to lead and that this has been a meaningful uh, series for them. And so if that's you, I, I just, um, yeah, I applaud you in that and thank you for being here. I know this has also been a hard series. If you're a complementarian and, and, we've, uh, and we're, we're going with a direction that maybe you're not super comfortable with, I, I, we've experienced a lot of grace. And so thank you, and thank you for sticking out five weeks with us. I really, uh, I really mean that, so thank you. The question that we've been looking at is, are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? And so we're saying yes, that women can serve in any leadership position in the church, lead pastor, campus pastor, elder. Um, and, and on our website, just so you guys know, there is uh, a place called Leading on the North Langley website. On there, you can actually ask questions, get some resources, some of the things that we've used to kind of come to the, the decisions that we have. And uh, there, there's a forum where you can post questions. And Matthew and Corey, who are lead and worship pastor over all of our campuses, they have a, a podcast they do called the After Sunday Podcast. And with that After Sunday Podcast, they kind of dive a little bit deeper. They do some silly things too, but they, they kind of unpack the scripture a little bit more. And Matthew, when he was on sabbatical this last summer, he read through literally a, a stack of books like this on women in leadership. And so he has way more information than we've been able to share during our, our sermons. And so uh, if you'd like to hear a little bit more of that stack, you can check out the After Sunday podcast. Okay, let's recap our series. So when we started this uh, five weeks ago, the first uh, series or first sermon was on Genesis 1 and 2, and we looked at how men and women were called to co-rule creation together. Then uh, our second message was all about the amazing stories that God has used women in positions of authority and leadership throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, to, to lead and to do amazing things. And then Matthew talked about Paul, how he, had, how he limited some married women from speaking in the church in Corinth to bring order to worship because worship had gone so out of order that, that worship wasn't happening. It was chaos. And then last week, Tim was here, and we saw that a particular group of women in Ephesus um, needed to, to be taught truth, and they needed to be discipled, and they needed to learn the scripture, and they needed to learn with humility. So I hope that as we're processing these actually really difficult passages, that we're able to see that sometimes when we dig a little bit deeper, things don't always mean exactly what we think on the top, on the surface level, and that these are not verses that are intended to limit women's roles in leadership today. But Paul did address very specific issues in specific congregation, congregations 2,000 years ago. 
I personally believe that the argument for an egalitarian, which is women can hold any leadership position, I think that's a stronger, more compelling argument than the complementarian, which is that ultimately there, there should be a man that is the ultimate authority in any church. Our, our church leadership studied the stack of books that Matthew went through and agreed that the egalitarian theology was what we wanted to be as a church. However, I need to acknowledge there are so many very intelligent people who have studied this way more than I have, who have said, you know what, a complementarian leadership structure is biblical. And so we can disagree on this. I have actually been blessed by many complementarian leaders, many complementarian authors. I grew up in a church that was complementarian. I was very much blessed by the complementarian leadership of my church and of specific leaders. And so in this, we are not trying to like say that if you're a complementarian that you're believing some horrible fallacy and, and you should just like immediately change your mind change your mind. Um, and so this, this has been difficult as we've navigated this together. And so no matter where you kind of sit on the spectrum or, or on this theological issue, thank you that you're here and that, that we're, still, we're still trucking through together, aren't we? Uh, today we're going to end our series with uh, a verse from Ephesians chapter 5, and it's about marriage and family, and it's a really tough one today. And uh, through this series, we've heard feedback from our complementarian members and some people that are like, okay, one of the big issues that we have with uh, kind of a, a, a co-leadership authoritative church model is that we believe that the Bible says that in the home that man should be the head, that man should be the head of his household and lead his wife and his kids. And we weren't planning on talking about this. This wasn't actually the original plan to end with Ephesians chapter 5. But we kind of shifted gears uh, midway and, and because we wanted to address this because we had had a number of people ask us about it. So the question that we're asking today, or sorry, that, that was asked is, how can God have a plan for, for men and women to lead the church together, but in, home, in the home, men are supposed to lead? I hope that today, when we look through Ephesians chapter 5, that we will be able to see a vision for a mutual partnership and for mutual submission in marriage. And it is my belief and my hope that in both the church and home, we can see that we are better when women and men are leading together. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, this is a, a topic that, that can be very divisive. And so, Lord, we pray for unity. We pray for uh, understanding and patience, that, that people that disagree with me, I would have patience and understanding, and that they would have patience and understanding when they disagree with me, Lord. So we, we ask that you would keep our church united. We ask that this could be a place where, where we can challenge each other and question one another as we seek after truth. Truth is what we're after, Lord Jesus. So we submit that to you in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, I believe that there is a continuity and a consistency between an egalitarian leadership model in church and an egalitarian leadership structure in the home. And um, this is a quote from a guy named uh, Seth Andrews who used to be a Christian and he founded The Thinking Atheist. He said, I continue to be amazed when I see Christian women defending a Bible that denigrates women. When you read certain passages in the Bible, it can sound pretty harsh. And at these passages that we've walked through in the last couple of weeks, they, they can seem like they denigrate women. And so how do we respond when people read these verses that, that are difficult and seem to degrade women? How do we answer those questions? We need to ask, are Christian marriages even good for women? 
So we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to Ephesians 5. The words will be on the screen, but we're going to be bouncing back and forth a little bit, so it would be helpful to have it open. So Ephesians chapter 5, my Bible starts with instructions for Christian households. Important to know that wasn't there in the original Greek. It's just what the editors put in to make it a little bit easier for us to understand. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Okay, I just want to acknowledge that we're talking about marriage today, and not everyone in this room is married. At least I don't think so. High school students? Anyway, um, so if you are single, if you are divorced, if you are widowed, if you are married, whatever you find your relationship status, I actually think that the principles in today's passage apply to really all of our relationships and not just a marital one. And so I think that you can still track with us and, and get something out of today. And so when we read this, this is a seemingly harsh text. And like what we did with 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, we want to dive into this and see, is it actually meaning what it says right there? Because that, that can seem pretty harsh. I want to back up a little bit and go to what I believe is the thesis statement for this section of Scripture. If we go up to verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is the thesis statement of everything that follows. It's all about being filled with the Spirit. When we are filled with the Spirit, what type of actions do we have? What type of lives do we lead when we are filled with the Spirit? And so Paul goes on to list four ways that we are changed or four things that we should do when we are filled with the Spirit. So let's keep reading at verse 19. Or sorry, yeah, verse 19. Number one, speaking to, another, to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So speaking truth to one another is number one. Number two is sing songs and make music from your heart to the Lord. Number three, always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then number four, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you're reading this in your Bible, you're going to be like, whoa, Kevin, there's, there's a chapter break there. This isn't the same, this isn't the same thought. And like I said earlier, that heading, that chapter break, isn't there in the original Greek. When we read this in English, it can seem like Paul is maybe starting a new idea or a new thought. But really, this whole section on submit to one another is just point four in what happens when we are filled with the Spirit. We speak truth, sing psalms, give thanks, and submit. And then he kind of unpacks what that looks like. How do wives and husbands submit to one another? How do parents and children submit to one another? How do masters and slaves submit to one another? This word can feel scary to us, but it can actually be a, a great word, I think, this, this word submit. It means, um, uh, hoop, sorry, hypotasso is the Greek word, and tasso means to stand, or sorry, to be under, to stand under, and so when we put them together, hypotasso means that we stand under, we submit, we allow someone else to have their way over us. 
We don't lord it over. We don't assume authority. We don't seek after power and control. There's a moment when Jesus is walking with his disciples and they're arguing. They're like, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And this is how Jesus replies in Mark chapter 10. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the man of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Rulers and Gentiles, the Roman Empire, they they assume control and power and authority, and they lord it over people to get their will, to get their way. And Jesus says, that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not how we as Christians are supposed to be following Jesus. Jesus came to serve, to give his life away. Okay, let's jump back into Ephesians. So Paul is speaking, and again, he's talking about our thesis statement is to be filled with the Spirit. Excellent. You didn't know I was going to ask you a question. And then number one was that we speak truth, that we sing songs, that we give thanks, and then now we're going to look at what submission means. And so in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to husbands. That makes sense. This is a very patriarchal society. Husbands to wives? Not quite as, not quite as common. Children to parents, parents to children. Good thing you're in the service today. Slaves to masters and masters to slaves. This actually was a revolutionary text. When we think about it, when men were in charge and they kind of had their way over their households and they were the ones that were in charge of everything, to tell a man to submit to his wife, to submit to his children, to submit to his slave, that would have been like flipping the entire like, social system upside down. Daryl Johnson says, what what starts to happen is a revolution. The revolution Paul opens up is in this revolutionary text that is Ephesians 5 and 6. It was revolutionary when it was first read in the first century in Ephesus, and it is still revolutionary in the 21st century cities of our world. Although the text has now been read for nearly 2,000 years and has worked redemptive changes in many cultures around the globe, no culture has yet to work out its full implications. Daryl Johnson. Imagine the world if we actually lived this out, this idea of mutual submission, where we submit to one another, where we're not looking to get our own way, where we're not trying to exercise our power over people to get something that is what I want. I actually think that John Lennon in his song Imagine, I think he would like mutual submission. He didn't like the church a lot, but I think he would like mutual submission now, complementarians will look at this passage, and they might argue that we see, we see a command for wives to submit to husbands, but the command to, to husbands is simply to love your wife. So, loving your wife looks like Jesus loving the church, and that's totally a high bar, but the wife is called to submit, and the man is called to love, but that's actually not how it reads. Okay? In the Greek, it starts with submit to one another, wives to your husbands, and later, husbands to your wives. If you look up here on the screen, you can see that submit is in the first verse in verse 21. It then later says wives to husbands. It doesn't actually say wives submit to husbands. Now, it's okay that it says that because it's under this theme of submit. 
And so I don't think that Bible translators are wrong to say wives submit to husbands, but it can be misleading when it's not included later when husbands are told to love their wives. And both times where it says wives submit to husbands, it actually doesn't use the word submit there. It is just implied and inferred. And so this whole section is about submission. And so the idea is that both wives are submitting to husbands, but also that husbands are submitted to wives and have the added calling to love their wife as Christ loved the church. So when you say, well, explicitly, the Bible says wives submit to your husbands, you can actually say, no, it doesn't say that. Because wives are called to submit to their husbands in the same way that husbands are called to submit to their wives. I think that's a really cool thing when we look at that in Ephesians. So we we do need to take this command for mutual submission very seriously. We don't want to dismiss it. But we do need to look at the flow and what's going on in this text. See, Paul is moving the church away from a culture that would have assumed a one-sided submission to a church that practices a two-way, loving, Christ-like submission. So instead of a one-way submission, it is now a two-way submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the Jesus way. It's the way of sacrifice and humility, of service and care. And, and the word egalitarian is not a great word here because egalitarian implies, implies equality, which is good. But I think the Bible calls us to so much more than just equality. The Bible calls us to lay our lives down, to love, to, to care for, to put the needs of someone else above our own. Sacrifice, submission, love, these are the ways of the kingdom. And that is even better than equality. Okay, I'm actually going to go on a quick uh, kind of sidebar. I, 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 in my notes, I call this my mini rant. Okay, so a mini rant. Um, there is a false idea from Ephesians chapter 5, wives submit to your husbands, that w- women are called to submit to men no matter what. And this verse has been used in very destructive ways, especially in marriages, where wives feel like they have to submit and do whatever their husband tells them, because it says so right here. And men have abused this. And so I want you to know that when it calls us to submit here, in no way is this submitting to abuse. You are not called to submit through abuse. If someone is using a verse like this in the Bible to convince you that you need to accept abuse, they are mishandling Scripture and they are being manipulative, and that is a form of spiritual abuse. It's time to get help and stop the abuse. Abuse is not godly. Now, most complementarians and egalitarians are going to be on the same side of this argument. So I'm not trying to say complementarians are okay with abuse. I'm definitely not saying that. But the idea of complementarianism is that it is supposed to be submitting in a Christ-like, loving way, the way Christ loved the church. And so it's not supposed to be an oppressive, an abusive, a, a, um, an abuse that, that causes pain or shame or suffering. Never let someone convince you that the Bible condones abuse or that it is godly to let someone keep abusing you. It's not godly to let someone abuse you. Now, um, I was a, a youth pastor for a long time, and I don't know if you guys know the term purity culture. Does anyone know that term? Like, I was a youth pastor in the early 2000s, and that was like prime purity culture time. And this is like when the church like, was all about like purity for, for teens and young adults, and the intentions behind purity culture were so good. I believe that they were so good. 
But what's happened is, is that today we've seen kind of the implications of that, and we've realized that maybe it wasn't quite as good as we thought. In fact, maybe it brought some harm. The research wasn't adequate, and the execution caused way more harm than good. It really messed up a lot of people's minds. The idea in, in purity culture was kind of like, ignore sex until you're married, and once you're married, just like figure it out and go crazy, right? And, and that wrecked people's minds, and that really messed with people, and it caused a lot of pain. And, and to be honest, like when I was a youth pastor, these were things that, that under purity culture that, that I was a part of, that I was teaching, and I, and I actually regret a lot of things that I taught to my students when they were in youth group about this. This is a book called The Great Sex Rescue, and I've recommended this book to every couple I know that is engaged or newly married, and I think that this is a really important book to read if you've been affected by purity culture, and I think that this is a great book to read if you're experiencing issues like this in your marriage, regardless of, of how long you've been married. But I think that this book has actually done a really great job of tearing down some of the lies that we were told in purity culture and helping the church to have a much healthier view of sexuality and sex and marriage. And so I, I would recommend this book. Um, it is research-based, and it teaches mutual submission, but not at the expense of wives' bodies and souls. Okay, and so mini rant over. Okay, we're going to keep going. We're going to go back to our verse in Ephesians 5, and it talks about headship, okay? Uh, headship. And so, um, sorry, in verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord, for husband is the head of the wife. Okay, he is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so this is the word kephale. Can everyone say kephale? Kephale. We've all learned some Greek during this series, haven't we? Um, and kephale, um, yeah, it means head, or like head honcho, okay? So head honcho, that's kind of what it would mean today. And there is a massive debate among scholars as how to define kephale, how to define head. And what the debate is, is that you will have a complementarian that will say, look, this is about authority, just as Christ is the head of the church, he has all authority over the church. Like, this obviously means authority, look at the verses, complementarians win, and then egalitarians look at that, and they read the exact same thing, and they translate kephale as source, like that man was made first, and then women came from man, and that as Christ loved the church, men are called to care for and protect and look out for women. And so complementarians are like, look, it's source, and it makes perfect sense, or egalitarians win. And so this is where different people can read the exact same thing, hear the exact same argument, and come out with different conclusions. So this is hard. We could spend a lot of time on what headship means, but I'm just going to say that, that if you are egalitarian, you think it means source, and if you are complementarian, you think it means authority. So I actually want to look at a possible third way to look at what headship means in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember that Paul is a missionary. So Paul is trying to convince people and show people the life-changing power of Jesus. And he lives at a time when men simply were the head of the household. The men did have authority over their wives and children and slaves. Have you ever heard of household codes? Household codes were a thing that was around in kind of the Greco-Roman world, and these household codes were, they, they were a, both a legal and a social framework for how your family fit together and who was in charge and, and how things went. And in those household codes, men had total authority over their wives, their children, 
and they're slaves. Those three things are important to remember. Clinton Arnold says, he says, throughout the Hellenistic and Roman eras, the husband or father had legal and social power over his wife, children, and slaves. The Romans referred to this legal authority as patria protestus. I can't believe I said that. So, okay, uh, that is that he possessed legal authority as the head of the household. Traditionally, the male head of the household received the dowry from the wife's parents when they married, and he controlled all the finances, made all the key decisions affecting the wife, the household, and had ruling authority over all matters. So could we read this in Ephesians and not say that Paul is saying that husbands should be the head of their wives, but that they simply are the head of the wives in this culture and at this time? Men were in charge. They were the head. Paul isn't saying, men, take charge, take lead, have authority, and rule over your wives and children and slaves. He just says that men are the head. Paul, I think, is actually just stating the obvious. What would have been the world and the culture and that, that people just lived in and swam in, and they wouldn't have thought anything else about it. Howard Marshall argues that nowhere are husbands instructed to take authority. They just already had it. Paul is probably not arguing about whether or not men or women should be the head. He's just acknowledging that legally and socially, all wives, children's, and slave decisions came from the head, which was the man. So could it be that Paul as a missionary is actually trying to take these ideas, these household codes, and he's not trying to abolish them, but he's trying to say, here's how the gospel works in this household code. In a household code where man is in charge of everyone, I'm actually going to flip that upside down, that God wants to flip that upside down, where it's not just wives submitting to husbands. Now it's husbands submitting to wives, and that was radical. That was something people had never heard before. Now it is also going to be like parents submitting to children. Oh my goodness, and this is kind of going on in Ephesians chapter 6. This doesn't happen. Or slaves, sorry, masters submitting to slaves. Like, that makes no sense in that time. Husbands were called to, to lead their church, or sorry, to lead their home and their family because they had the legal and social responsibility to do so. And then Paul is saying, let me show you what the ultimate head of us did. Jesus Christ, our King. And he says in verse 25, I'm just going to read part of this again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So is Paul suggesting that the first century household codes should go on forever? Or is Paul suggesting that, that men must have the legal and social responsibility for their wives? Or is Paul being a good missionary and saying this is how the gospel works in a broken, messed up, upside down world? I know that for me, when I read the teaching and the life of Jesus, this seems to fit a lot more with the Jesus that I read about in the Gospels, who takes the proud and makes them weak, and takes the, the weak and makes them strong, who reverses the order of power in the world. And so Paul, I believe, is saying that the head of our church wore crown, a, a crown of thorns on his head, that he was struck on his head for us, and over his heads were written mockery words, Jesus, King of the Jews, as he was on the cross. O sacred head now wounded, 
with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns your only crown. This is the type of head that Jesus was for us. Now, there's a glaringly obvious question when we talk about wives submit to husbands, and that is, is that do we think that Paul likes or endorses slavery? Like, in all of these things, like, I, I've been saying that it's, it's wives, children, and slaves. And so, are, do we think that we're saying that Paul is saying, oh, slavery is good for all time, for all people, in all cultures? I think that Paul is working within this broken system where there are masters and slaves, And so he is speaking and he is teaching, again, what that upside-down Jesus revolution world was all about. In Ephesians chapter 5, the the universal message is that Jesus is the source. Jesus is the center of whether it's your marriage. Jesus is the center of your relationship with your children, with your friends, with your colleagues, with people that work for you. I believe that the universal timeless message of Ephesians 5 is that Jesus is the center, that we are filled with the Spirit, and when we are filled with the Spirit, we submit to one another out of mutual love and reverence for Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit, the thesis statement back in verse 18. And how we interact with our kids and our spouses and our wives, regardless of the authority that we have over them, regardless of the power that we have over them, should be marked by love and submission. That is revolutionary. The love, the grace, the humility, the self-giving, the self-emptying, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Jesus Jesus-centered marriage sounds like this. I trust you with this one. I will defer to you on this matter. I want to make sure that you have your way. See, equality is good, but it's not enough. Mutual submission, I believe, is better. Now, many people in this room have probably experienced profound pain because one or both spouses were not being led by the Spirit or walking in humility. Marriages can experience horrible pain when there's a narcissist in the relationship or when we're acting narcissistic, when one person is not walking in humility or both people aren't walking in humility, when someone in the relationship is making decisions based on lust or greed or their own career or their own desires. So here's what I want to do. I want to take this, what we're talking about, this mutual submission, and use a case study that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. But I would suggest that this is going to be a great example of what Paul means when he says, submit one to the other. Yes, there is legal headship. That was the way of the Roman Empire. But when Paul gets into detail, line after line, we see equality and partnership and mutual submission as part of marriage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to start at verse 3. So this is talking about husbands and wives, and it says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Okay, so some of these things would have made sense, but when we read this, every one of these is about equality, mutual authority, mutual consent. This was completely countercultural. 
If we go back to verse 4, it says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Yes, everyone would have agreed with that because wives were property of their husbands at this time. It made sense. But now when you go on to say, in the same way, oh my goodness, what's about to happen? The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The wife has authority over the husband's body. Do you guys remember last week when Tim was here and he was preaching on a, on a text that said wives shouldn't have authority over husbands or men shouldn't have authority over women? Here we see that women have authority over their, their spouse's bodies in the same way that a spouse has authority over theirs. The word for authority is that positive word, the exousia authority, not the authentane that we saw Tim talk about last week. A wife had exousia, authority, over her husband's body. Again, so countercultural, so upside down, so a reversal of the power structure of the time. When a man had the moral and legal right to do whatever he wanted with his wife, with his wife's body, even to death, was called to submit to her. Paul is describing a relationship of equality, of mutual consent, of mutual submission, and I think that if we're unclear about what Ephesians chapter 5 is saying with submit one to the other, we can read 1 Corinthians 7, and hopefully that this is helpful, and this is what submission looks like. It's mutual. It's consenting. It's equal. This is a revolutionary text. Ephesians chapter 5, I've come to appreciate every time Ephesians 5 has come up, like as a pastor, I just like run from it. I'm like, I do not want to talk about this. This is like, I feel like I will be lynched if this happens. And, and because this is a, a, a very harsh text and people are, are afraid of it. I've been afraid of it. And in my study, I've come to appreciate this as a revolutionary text, as a beautiful text now, complementarians might say that when we do away with headship like this, that there is a fear that, that um, the calling of husbands to lay their lives down for their wives and their families, that that gets erased. That if we're called to lay our lives down the way Christ laid his life down for the church, and we are no longer the head, as in authoritative, then what happens? Does that headship fall apart? What is laying your life down? And I think that the call is so much bigger and the bar is higher than we realize. The call is not just for husbands to lay down their, their lives for their wives. The call is for wives to also lay down their lives for their husbands. Women are capable of this. Women are capable of loving and laying their lives down. And we look to the cross and we see how we're called to one another and that the bar is so high. Again, St. Thomas Aquinas, to love is to will the good of the other. And then Jesus says it like this. He says, my command is this, to love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay one's life down for one's friends. North Langley, I want to encourage us to let Ephesians chapter 5 transform us, to allow it to change us. To allow this text and this idea of mutual submission to change how we interact with our spouses, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our friends. The gospel is good news and it wants to not have us hold on to power and authority in our relationships, but to give that away. This is the result of being filled with the Spirit. This is one of the four things that being filled with the Spirit should mean for us. I read a John sermon on this text, Pastor John, who was dissing me in the announcements, but um, 
I still like him. Anyway, and so some of this next part is, is kind of me stealing from him a little bit, but I want to encourage us to submit in our relationships with our spouses, kids, friends, coworkers. Submission in my life means loving the way of Jesus more than the way of Kevin, right? Submit to the good of your spouse. Submit to the needs of your children. Learn to submit when you think you're right. Practice submission when you know you're wrong. Submit when you were the one who submitted first last time. Try submitting to someone you don't like. Choose submission when you really, really want to win. Submit when you're the smarter one. Submit without being owed anything. Submit to people you're in charge of and submit to people you lead. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission in my life means that I love the way of Jesus more than the way of Kevin. I'd like to invite the the worship team to come up as I close. And so I hope that this morning, whether or not you kind of see authority in the church and home through a complementarian or an egalitarian lens, that we've been able to kind of journey together and, and dive into Scripture. And I hope that throughout these last five weeks that you've seen that women and men are called to a beautiful partnership of co-leading, of co-ruling, of co-pastoring in both marriage and in the church. And I hope that the beauty of the co-rulership um, of Genesis 1 and 2 and the stories of women throughout the Bible and looking at the text and seeing how sometimes things don't mean what we think they mean because they're actually speaking to a specific church at a specific time about real problems that that church was happening. Like that we, that we can look at this and say, Lord, come change us. Holy Spirit, like we, we want to give this to you. And so I truly believe that we are better when women and men are leading together. I want you to invite to stand with me as we we enter into worship and pray. And so, Lord, we're coming to the end of this series. Holy Spirit, we say thank you for the journey that we've been on. And and Lord, I pray that, that in this, we would be a united church and that we would be a church that, that is friends with people who think differently than us. Holy Spirit, I pray, come and fill this place. Lord, I know that that we've touched on topics that can be painful and some things that, that I'm sure we have baggage about or maybe triggered. And so, Lord, I pray for healing. Lord, I pray against abuse. I pray that abuse would have no place in your church, in Jesus' name. I pray against that. And Lord, may you be healing our relationships, healing our marriages, healing our relationships with our kids, our parents, our co-workers. And so Holy Spirit, we give you this series, we give you our thoughts, and we just say transform us into the people and into the church that you want us to be. Lord Jesus, thank you for making us better when we are leading together. In Jesus' name, amen.